Well, good morning. For those of you who are maybe not on Facebook or haven't heard our news yet, Adam and I are pregnant. We are expecting, thank you, I've not just gained some weight, it's for a reason, <laughs> but uh, we've actually, uh, we're expecting a little girl in January, so we're really excited. And uh, if you haven't seen me lately, it's because I've been really sick, and I am so grateful to be back <laughs> and feeling better. So uh, I don't know about you, but I have loved just sitting back and enjoying this series so far. Uh, it's been a really, really good series, and I don't know many churches that would take on the challenge of actually going through uh, this specific passage uh, verse by verse like we have. And yet, I feel because we have, we've really hit on some significant and really good topics. And I don't know about you, but I have, God's just really used it in my life. And there's been some unearthing of things that I'm like, boy, this, is, this has done a number on me in a good way. And as I've heard testimonies throughout the church, I've noticed that he's been doing the same in your lives, and I'm excited to uh, just continue that series today. And if you're new, uh, we're doing this uh, series called Redefined, and it is on the Sermon on the Mount. And it is one of Jesus' most famous sermons. It's a long one, but it is so good, so good. He's speaking specifically, and if you think of Jesus just sitting on the side of a mountain, he's, spe he's speaking specifically to his followers. And he has a specific audience in mind here. He is uh, talking to specifically his disciples, and that means that he's not talking necessarily to the world, he's talking to you and me, to you and me. And this is how he's laying out for us as believers to live, for us to live. And, and if you remember, the series started out in Matthew 5 in what we call the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. Things like blessed are the poor or blessed are those who mourn. And we walked through um, some of those passages early on. And what we see right away is that Jesus is turning things on its head. Because for the Israelites, this is unlike any sermon they've ever heard. <laughs> They're used to be tolding, told what to do and how to do it, and Jesus is utterly redefining that. And then, later on, after the Beatitudes, we move into what some call are the do-attitudes. <laughs> and if you remember things like, you know, the being the salt and light, and living by the law, and, you know, uh, oaths, and divorce, and adultery, and, and if that wasn't hard enough, right? <laughs> He then moves in chapter six, which we are looking at today, he moves into what some call are the heart attitudes. He takes it just one level deeper. And if there's one thing that Jesus has been really clear about from the very beginning of this sermon, it's that what's going on inside of us is what really matters, right? It's not just our outward actions, it's what's going on inside of us that really matters. And, and in chapter six, he's taking us deeper still, and he's addressing our heart's motives, our heart's motives, what, what drives us, what drives us. So today we're looking at the first four verses in Matthew chapter six, and, and at first glance, Jesus is talking about just giving to the needy, but... What we come to see 
is a deeper principle that actually runs through the rest of the passage, which is actually 1 through 18. 1 through 18. And this is the deeper principle. It matters, it matters whose approval we're living for because it determines our reward in this life and the one to come. It matters who we live for. It's just like our jobs. It matters who we work for because that's what kind of determines our paycheck. It determines what we take home every two weeks. The same goes for who we do our good works for on this earth. Because who we do them for and the needs that motivate those actions are connected to the reward that we take home now in this present day and to our heavenly home. So let's go ahead and pray and invite the Holy Spirit. Well, Holy Spirit, we know you are here. God, we know you're here, but we just ask for more of you as we do every time we meet with you in this setting. God, we long for a a true expression of your spirit. God, would we hear from you today? Lord, I pray that just in this time as we study your word, God, that you would show us things that maybe we've never seen before. Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes, and that we would leave here honestly just different than the way we even came in. We give you this time, and we pray, God, you are glorified. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and start by reading our passage today, and it's in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. And if you need a Bible, there are some on either side of the stage, or if you don't want to walk forward and you'd rather walk back, there's some in the back as well. Um, You can follow along on the screens or on your phones. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, you, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Well, first, before we dive into this passage today, I just want to zoom out for a second, because I think it's worth noting that these verses are just a piece of the whole. These four verses are connected to a bigger narrative, and Jesus lays out the main idea of this narrative in the very first verse, and then he goes on to give three separate illustrations as to how this plays out in the different areas of our lives. And the first one that we're looking at today is the giving to the needy. In the following weeks, we're going to look at the next two illustrations, which are prayer and fasting. So he gives these three specific illustrations to kind of further speak about this this first verse. Now, to the Jews in that day, these three specific things were the three great cardinal works of the Jewish life. They were the three great pillars, three great pillars on which a good life was based. And to Jews, almsgiving, or giving to the needy, as what we're talking about today, was the most sacred of all of the religious duties. And it was so sacred that they even used the same word, tzedakah, for both righteousness, good works, and almsgiving. They used the same word. 
And interesting enough, they also looked down on really showy giving. Uh, there was even stories that I read of, of rabbis who went to the extreme and would walk in the streets and drop money behind them, you know, so they wouldn't see who picked it up. <laughs> But again, that was all about exterior actions, right? As a side note, though, Jesus, and we need to understand this, is using these three specific examples because they're relevant to his audience there on the mountainside. They're relevant. He knows that his followers are already engaging in these three things. He, he knows that. And notice he doesn't say, if you give, or if you pray, or if you fast. He says, when you give. And he says, when you pray and when you fast, it's understood. Jesus says, Jesus says this to us too. But I think it's worth asking, are these relevant examples for us today? Are they? Do we do them? And, and not just during the 40 days of prayer and fasting, but, but do we do these things? Uh, are they already a part of our lives as believers? Now, I want to say that Jesus doesn't take time to specifically focus on the importance of these three things. Like I said, it's understood. He takes it a step deeper. He turns these examples on their heads, and he says, it's not enough. Oh boy, it's not enough to simply pray and simply fast and simply give. He wants us to ask ourselves, Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we do them? Jesus wants us to look at our hearts and examine our hearts' motives for why we do the good things that we do. For example, like why am I why am I even putting money in the church basket as it, you know, the offering basket as it passes by? Or why am I dropping off food to that family or Why am I sending a check to charity? Or why am I even serving in that shelter? Why am I volunteering to help with that ministry? These questions are actually so important and so vital that Jesus actually starts off today's passage with a very clear warning. If we read again in Matthew 6.1, he says, be careful. Just be careful, be careful. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Here we see right away this clear warning, which he repeats a total of four times in this passage from verses 1 to 18. He repeats it, so that means it's probably really important. But it is so, what is this that he's talking about that is so important, that is so vital, that we need to be aware, that we need to be careful I think it's this, that there's a very true reality that we can go through life doing really good things with really wrong motives. And therefore, the rewards that really matter are actually completely lost. Ouch. <laughs> we can do these things with the facade that they're for God, but miss him entirely. And sadly, that could be our whole lives. That could be our whole lives if we're not aware. If we don't take the time to examine our hearts before the Lord and say, God, why am I doing these things? Is it for people to see me? Or is it because I want to please you, God? 
What's actually driving us? It's so important that he, first and foremost, warns us. And I think this is interesting to note that, again, this sermon is specifically for those that already claim that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. They're already saying, God, I'm going to follow you through this life. And uh, we've said, you know, Jesus, we're going to live for you. But the reality is that all of us have a natural bent to want to be seen and commended by people. We all do. We all do. Most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, are doing things with an eye to the approval of some audience or another. The question is not whether or not we have an audience, but which audience do we have? Which audience do we have? I think it's too often that we can take the immediate praises of people over pleasing our Father And Jesus knows this. He knows this. We've all been created with a need to be seen, with a need to be valued for what we do and who we are. But how we go about that really matters. And who we look to for those needs and for our self-worth really matters. Well, there are three audiences that Jesus identifies in this passage on giving. We see that we can do good things, like giving to the needy, praying or fasting, for one of three audiences. One of three audiences, either others, ourselves, or God. And that, depending on who we live for, our reward, or what we're looking to get out of it, is going to vary really a lot, greatly. But looking at each possible audience, though, I think we, we start to uncover a little bit of our heart's motives and for why we do what we do. So let's look at the first possible audience in our passage today. And it's in Matthew just one through two. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. First, Jesus tells us there is a wrong way to give. And it has nothing to do with how much money (laughs) you're putting in an offering plate. It has everything to do with giving because you want to be honored by others. That is what Jesus is saying is the wrong way to give. Notice, again, he's not talking about a dollar amount here. He's not talking about outward action. He's asking us, why are we doing the things that we're doing? And he makes this funny statement. He says, do not announce it with trumpets. With trumpets. Has anyone ever done that? I haven't done that. <laughs> I don't know if I've done that. But Jesus really is just figuratively saying, just don't go around tooting your own horn, right? You just can't say tooting in the Bible. So, you know, he says it nicely, like announcing with trumpets. But what Jesus might have been, what he might have actually been referring to here is uh, when the gifts were given, you know, gifts were given during the feast times. And that was usually signaled by the blast of a temple trumpet calling people to come and give. And the trumpets would blare during the feast times, and people would scurry out of their homes onto the streets, I'm sure with a pious look on their face, you know, like, look at me and my zeal, you know, big giver coming through. I mean, the moment those trumpets blast, you see people just emerging from their homes ready to give. 
Uh, And this is maybe what Jesus is referring to here. But what he's saying to us is, the wrong way to give is to draw attention to your giving. We don't lose our reward if someone sees us put money in the offering basket as it passes by. Oh, someone saw me. Oh, well, you know. (laughs) It's not about that, is it? It's about our heart motives. Why did we put it in? Did we put it in so that that person would notice us putting in that check? It's all about our hearts, isn't it? So there's not always an obvious trumpeter when we are giving. We do this in so many subtle ways, right? We, we do it in ways that we don't, even, we don't even know or consciously aware that we're doing sometimes. And I wanna look at just one word to uncover a little bit of why. Jesus uses the word honored here, saying, you know, don't do this to be honored by others. And this word is doxazo, and it's the word for glory. And it means to praise, to celebrate, to honor, to make renowned, to acknowledge the dignity and worth of some person or thing. Wow. Who here doesn't want to have your worth validated or acknowledged? We all do. We all do. We're human. And it's inherent, actually, in how we're made. And it can be one of the things that ends up driving all that we do, if we're not careful. But as Jesus points out too many times, what we need to be careful of is that we just look to people first and not to the Lord first. That's what he's looking for. And and we can see this in, in our world today, can't we? We can see this all over our world today. We live in an age that is saturated with the goal of being seen, with being liked, with being commented on by what we do and how we present ourselves. And that's one way, I guess, of, I don't know, discovering or boosting your self-worth is by what other people say about us, looking for affirmation outwardly from what's going on, from what people are saying or how they're reacting, looking outward for validation. That's really the postmodern approach to self-worth these days. And I found it interesting. I was reading an article, and, and this is what it said. For what's felt like an eternity, I felt the need to be heard. I felt a need to be seen, and for a long time, I quenched this thirst by posting incessantly to social media. 20,000 Facebook posts, wow, and 50,000 tweets. I did it because I was lonely, wow. And also because the idea, also because the idea of talking to people in real life scared me. Because in real life, I can't edit or curate myself the way that I can on my touchscreen. I could always be clever, and I could always be interesting. I could always be liked and adored and envied and admired, but I was sharing too much of myself and the wrong parts of myself. And then I lost my actual sense of self. Wow. Charles Cooley, who is a famous sociologist, uh, said, your self-concept or this sense of self is based on what you think the most important person in your life thinks of you. Ooh, yeah. (laughs) And that begs the question then, who is your most important person? The one who shapes your feelings about your self-worth. Is it your boyfriend? Is it your girlfriend? Is it your spouse? Is it your boss? 
How many of us here still struggle to gain the approval and admiration of parents who might have withheld praise for years? I mean, you can be 60 years old and still want to hear a good job from your mom and dad. Or maybe it's other Christians. You know, we want to hear what they have to say about us, and it spills over into the way that we act at church. Have you ever prayed so that other people will go, oh, now that was a good prayer. That was good. Yeah, oh, I felt that. Anyone here honestly involved in any kind of spiritual activity is going to be faced with this temptation. I mean, it's just a reality. And for me, I have to. I have to ask myself when I get up here to preach, who am I doing this for? Who am I doing this for? Is it so people will say at the end, oh, great job, Heather? (laughs) No, it has to be, that question has to be lingering in my thoughts always. Who is my audience? And who am I seeking to please? Galatians 1.10, and in Paul's usual blunt fashion, he says, I am, now trying, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant to Christ. Oh, yeah. We, can let, we cannot let someone who did not create us define or determine our value. We can't. And God wants, to move, wants us to move our value back to center, back to what he says about who we are. He wants us to do things because he's called us to do them, not because we're going to get applause from somebody, because what he knows is that if that's all you're doing it for, that's all you'll ever get. That's all you'll ever get. In Matthew 2, In Matthew 6, 2, it says, Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. What's interesting, that word reward, misthos, is a technical term for a commercial transaction. (laughs) And it means to receive a sum in full and to give receipt for it. Boy. You know, Jesus is not adverse to us giving with a motive for reward. He actually talks about reward a lot in the Bible. But who are we looking for? for that reward? Do we feed the hungry or help the needy and then without thinking it, tweet or post so that people know how we're sacrificing our time? (laughs) I don't know, I I don't know that, I don't think Jesus is at all against Twitter or Facebook or Instagram necessarily or even posting about a homeless shelter or us even serving there. He is more interested in why we're doing it, right? Who are we doing it for? Because he knows that if we're doing it for the likes or for the applause, that's all we'll ever get. That's it. That's our blessing. What people think of you. And boy, do we know that that's fleeting. (laughs) It's so fleeting. That fleeting attention and affirmation of people and it it does. It feeds our ego for just five seconds, you know. (laughs) But it never lasts. It never lasts. It's sinking sand. So Jesus moves on in the passage, and he subtly introduces another possible audience that we could be living for in verses 3 and 4. And he says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And here Jesus is really, what he's telling us is, here's the right way to give. Giving in secret without commending ourselves 
without commending ourselves. Jesus uses this really strange metaphor of our left hand not knowing what our right hand is doing. I don't know if that's even possible. <laughs> um, physiologically, I don't know if that's possible if we can ever not know fully. But what he really means is really a fun visual. It, it just means that you're not congratulating yourself, right? It means you're not congratulating. Good job, Heather. You're not congratulating yourselves. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, keep the things Keep the thing so secret that even you yourself are hardly aware that you're doing anything at all praiseworthy. Let God be present and you have enough of an audience. Hmm. We can't really be ignorant about our own giving, but we can deny ourselves the self-congratulation. We can deny ourselves that our, you know, our own self-righteous approval. A little pat on the back, you know? I did a good one there. <laughs> we, can, we can deny ourselves that. And, and what's interesting is, you know, when we have that kind of mentality, it's a very self-serving mentality. And, and we can give to the needy with that motive just to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. Or, you know, if we just look at the world today, we see this everywhere. And it actually has a really famous kind of funny name, it's called expressive individualism. I didn't know that, I found that. <laughs> but we look, what it means is that we look inside of ourselves to our own wants and desires and needs, and we let that determine what we do in life. So I wanna feel good about myself today, so I'm gonna give something nice to somebody. We let our needs and our desires guide us, and it becomes our life goal to somehow discover our true self and what makes us happy and to, ex and to express that in the world. And nothing, and I mean nothing, should restrain me and my true self, not my parents, not my religion, not the commitments I've made in my marriage, and definitely not God. I've created my own sense of self-worth. Anybody see that in our world today? It's everywhere. We hear it everywhere. And not to judge, but it, it is too good to be aware of. Just good and healthy to be aware of. And there is a real problem with this mentality, with this expressive individualism, is that when we've created our own self-worth, it is way too weak of a foundation to sustain us. It is always under threat. I'll give you a few examples. If, let's say you're a perfectionist. Anybody here? <laughs> Perfectionist. You only feel good if everything is perfect, right? But since things are never perfect, dang it, <laughs> we, we never feel good. We never feel good all the time. Let's say you're a peacemaker, and you only feel good if your relationships in your life are going well. But... The reality is that since our relationships in this fallen world are filled, are broken and filled with tension, we never always feel good. It's always up and down depending on how the relationships in our lives are going. Or maybe your self-worth is based on your own achievement. What we know is that no success is ever permanent and you have to keep achieving. <laughs> you have to keep performing. And every day you have to conquer a new mountain. And every day you start with a zero balance and you have to build yourself up all over again. And it is, it is exhausting. 
and frustrating to live like that. I have a friend who actually got some really quality advice from some coworkers, and, and she was telling me about a situation in her life that was just really hard, and, and she said, you know what, though? My friends at work, they give me this great advice. I said, girl, you just got to find out what makes you happy and do that. And she's like, and that sounded good to me. And I, I must have had a funny look on my face. She goes, what do you think of that, Heather? And I, I gave her my honest opinion because I love her and I care a lot about her. And I said, girl, do you really believe that you know yourself so well that you know what will make you happy? Because what I know to be true in my life is that I have so many competing desires inside of myself. One minute I want this, and the next minute I don't. <laughs> I have so many competing desires inside of myself. Good luck sorting that out by yourself. I mean, it's slightly depressing trying to figure this out, because this is a mess. We didn't create ourselves, right? We didn't create ourselves, so why would we think that we can figure out what's going to really bring us real contentment and real peace and a sense of purpose and worth? Only one can do that. Dr. E. Stanley Jones, a missionary and a doctor in India, for many years said this, one does not know who he is until he knows whose he is. Ooh, I love that. The only way you are ever going to know who you are is by discovering whose you are. Whose you are. You know, people in this world, and, and a lot of us are, are on that rat race of trying to prove themselves to themselves and to others. Because we all have that desire to be validated. We all do. And we think... I think at times that by doing just good things, ultimately that might make us a little bit more acceptable to people, or even ourselves. Because we want that, we, we have to live with that. We want to be accepted by others, to, be, to belong. But, but that reward, it, it sadly, it never lasts. And it's like grasping for the wind. It's exhausting. <laughs> The audience of others and of ourselves is a fragile foundation for our worth and identity. They were never meant to bring that kind of life that they seem to promise. Only the one that created you can do that. So then Jesus lays out at the end of this small little passage the final audience that we can actually live for if we haven't seen it already. And in verse four, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And here's what he's telling us here, the right motive in giving, giving in secret for the father's reward. That's the right motive. You know, I have a friend who actually told me that she had um, taken the time to sell a bunch of her stuff in her home I went out of her way to try to make some money, and I remember asking her about it, and she said, it's actually so that I can financially support one of my dear friends who's going on a missions trip. And I thought, wow, that's so, your friend must be so grateful. Like, that's amazing. She said, oh, but I, I didn't feel like I was supposed to tell her, so I just sent her the money anonymously. It's like, really? Wow. And... She said, because as much as I love my friend and as much as I want to support her, I felt like I wasn't really doing it for her. I was doing it for the Lord. I thought, wow, that's the kind of heart that God wants us to have. Our Father sees 
And I love that. Our Father sees. Jesus reminds us that our Father knows and sees. If God notes every little sparrow hopping on the ground, and if he has counted every hair on your head, no matter how little that might be, (laughs) God is the one who knows and sees all that's going on in our life. And contrary to that universal human desire, to parade our virtues, and to give in order to be recognized and honored, Jesus requires that our good deeds are done in secret. In secret. I love this quote from Michael Todd. He says, you can't Instagram integrity, and you cannot Facebook faithfulness. Good luck trying. (laughs) Hebrews 4.13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes, the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We always have a divine audience, and no matter who you are, or what you believe, or who you believe in, or even who you're living for, we all have one who sees, one who knows what's really going on in our lives. And I love This quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a really great Bible teacher. He says, God sees it all. He knows your heart, and other people don't. You can deceive them, and you can persuade them that you're quite selfless. But God, he knows your heart. How would it change our lives if every morning we woke up and we lived with the realization that God sees us? That God sees us. I think that would change things for us to go, God, I'm going to live in your presence today, knowing that you're with me and knowing that you see me. And when I say that, though, I think it's really important that we, we just remember who this God is that sees us, <laughs> that he's not this divine sheriff that's waiting to pounce on us or look to point out or criticize every little wrong step that we make. He's not a principal waiting to drag us off to detention. That's not our God. How does Jesus refer to God in this passage over and over and over again? What does he call him? He calls him Father, doesn't he? He calls him Father. And as our Father, the God who sees us, is actually constantly looking for opportunities to bless you. Wow, to bless you. And God is watching you so that he can protect you, so he can provide for you, so that he can comfort you when you are heartbroken and influence you toward a better, truer, and more rewarding life. That's who's watching us. What I think it is, is it's, it's kind of the difference between seeing God as a boss or God as a father. Because bosses, they need you to get things done, right? They need you to get things done, and, and so you apply for the job, and you qualify for the job, and, and you do the job, and hopefully the company makes the profit, and, and you get rewarded with a paycheck. But with fathers, their sons and daughters, whether biological or adopted, did not apply for the job. They are not qualified. They're actually really needy and dependent when they're young. They drain their parents of sleep and funds, and they're They're chosen not because they're qualified, but by grace. It's a gift. And grace is all about fellowship. If God is a boss, then yes, everything we do in public matters. 
It's all about what we produce. But if God is a father, then everything can be done in secret. Everything can be done in secret. It's, it's because we're in relationship with him and it is all about who we are living for. When we live for the audience of our good, good father, our self-worth's foundation is not based on whether or not I am a good person. Oh, thank the Lord for that. It's actually whether or not I am a loved person. That's my foundation for my self-worth, is whether or not I'm a loved person. And if you don't know this yet, you are a loved person. You are loved by your Father. You know how I know this? Because this is how Jesus lived himself. This is how Jesus lived. This was the foundation of Jesus' own self-worth and the foundation of his really successful ministry. He knew who he was before God. And at Jesus' baptism, before he even started anything in his ministry, before he did anything, before he produced anything, we read these words in Luke 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the bodily form of a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased." With you, I am well pleased. Now that's something to base your identity off of. That's something to put your self-worth on. Is a father who says that to us. You are my son and daughter, whom I love. And with you, I'm already well pleased. Wow. So let me close with this. What is this reward that he keeps talking about? <laughs> over and over again. What is this reward that that Jesus says the Father will give us. I think we get a glimpse of what he means in actually the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 5, 8. He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. And, And that means not a perfect heart. That doesn't mean a heart free from all sin. What that means is an undivided heart an undivided heart, one that is not living for multiple audiences, a a heart that is undivided, a, a heart that's living for the audience of one. And what is the reward? We'll see God. We'll see God. The reward we get is more of Jesus. We get nearness to Jesus, we get a greater revelation and experience of his transforming power and presence in our lives. And that closeness that Jesus brings, brings confidence regarding our future. It brings peace in whatever comes our way. It brings a sense of security. It brings freedom from living, from the expectation and and opinions of other people. And, And it brings steadiness and maturity. We'll finally start to see ourselves the way that Christ sees us, who he made us to be, and what he made us for. Who doesn't want that kind of reward? (laughs) I want that. I want that. The motive of a mature Christian is, what I want most in this life is you, Jesus. Is you, Jesus. I want nearness to you. I want more of you. And not by looking at people or inside of myself, but by looking at you and living for your smile and living for your pleasure 
first and foremost. I think it utterly transforms our lives here and now and into eternity. God sees all and he remembers our smallest act. It's our sin that he says that he remembers no more. Of all the things that he forgets, praise God, it's our sin. And he says even that as far as the east is from the west, that he'll separate our sins from us. And that's like forever. (laughs) But it's the little things that we do for him that he will not forget. And I like to think of it this way. I don't know if this is how it's going to play out. But I like to think of when I finally get to heaven and and I'm in Jesus' presence and and he's given out rewards, (laughs) the heavenly ones, I think we're all going to be in a crowd looking around, okay, who's going to be first, you know? (laughs) I don't know if we'd be totally sanctified by then, but maybe it won't matter who goes first then. Uh, But it won't be the Billy Grahams, and it's not going to be the John Wimbers. It's going to be the Joe Smith or the John Smith from nowhere, Ohio, that that gets called up, and and we're like, does anyone know him? Do you know him? Was he a really great guy I just didn't hear about, you know? No. No, it's going to be the people we least expect, isn't it? Because in this world, the insignificant, the seemingly insignificant, those who have been hidden, those who have lived a very humble life in the eyes of the world, are the ones that God has written in his book, the ones that have made that lasting and powerful impact in the kingdom of God, who he will, he will reward. Are we living for the well done from that audience of the one who created us? the one who created us? And is the the longing that's deeper than the desire to be seen, is the longing that really drives us, the desire that really drives us, that longing to hear him say, like he did in Matthew 25, 23, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's stand.